You're listening to Cricket Ultras. This is Arun Sudhaman. And today, joined by another Australian who is smashing the boundaries. It is, of course, Darren Burns. Darren, any cultural reviews into your behavior these days? I'm constantly self-reflecting day in, day out. I write a little diary in myself. And so hopefully I never get to the point of ball tampering uh, as the Australian team did in New Orleans. yeah, interesting week in cricket. I mean, obviously the big story over the last few weeks and, you know, Monday, the finally long-awaited review into the culture of Australian cricket finally came out. Um, probably much to the chagrin of the chairman, David Peaver, who, to be honest, has looked like a bit like Steve Waugh in the 1995 game against Curtly Ambrose, ducking, weaving, playing and missing, um, but surviving at the moment. Um very interesting that David Peaver has been kind of the whipping boy for all this when a lot of the guys who are in charge have stepped away graciously in the last few weeks, yep. avoiding the flack from the review. So uh, it seems to be a habit in Australia now, the seven-year itch. So seven years ago, we had the Argus review, which changed a lot of Australian cricket, which probably led in, in some degree to where we are today. So we're at another inflection point for Australian cricket. Um, and we still haven't worked out how to bat yet. Yeah. Well, that's um, the actual cricket seems to be secondary here, right? I mean, um, and it, some of the headlines around the review have been uh, quite interesting, I think. You know, I think one of them said it, it's kind of given Australian cricket more than it bargained for, these two reviews. Um, there's another one I saw that basically said the leadership of the, of the Australian cricket um, board is is untenable now, and as you've mentioned, David David Peaver, he's he's clinging on. Um, I think Malcolm Speed, his predecessor, has said that uh, he wants Mark Taylor to replace um, David Peaver. He wants a cricket person um, to to be in that position as CA as CA chairman. Peaver's insisted he will retain his position until the state associations tell him otherwise, but. It does seem strange that he's he's still in place when, you know, this culture that has grown up under his leadership has been so, you know, thoroughly discredited. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think what's interesting is that before the review was released on Monday, um, he was actually re-elected by the states as chairman. Um, but it was kind of like he, before the report actually went out, which is extraordinary, to be honest. Um, so basically they, they re-elected him, then he, they released the findings to the states, which just seems to be bizarre to me. So he's basically locked himself in for another three years uh, at the moment. Uh, the whole thing seems interesting. I think, you know, Peeva's been a bit of a sort of uh, a staunch figure. I mean, he, he was one of the guys, if you recall, last year during the whole pay dispute with the ACA, the Australian Cricketers Association, to, to continue the shared revenue model with the Australian Cricket Board. Uh, he almost turned the public onto the players saying that they were spoiled, they were, you know, being greedy, when actually most, many of the leagues around the world do have a player revenue share agreement. So he's been a figure that hasn't always been loved. He's a very corporate figure. Um, I saw him interviewed on the 7.30 Report, which is a big TV show in in Australia. He was very, very, very evasive. Um, He'd been doing media training, I think, every day. He didn't really answer many of the questions. But he's still there, like I said, like Steve Waugh against Ambrose in 95. He's still managing to hang in there. And I do feel a bit of sorrow. You know, I feel a bit sorry for him because, 
you know, the guys who were there for a long time, uh, including Pat Howard, of course, Darren Lehman, and of course, James Sutherland, kind of walked away <laughs> before the yeah. shit hit the proverbial fan. Um, and Peaver is left holding the bag. And he, they sort of dodged these 42 bullets or the 42 recommendations from the review. He's kind of left there, you know, the only guy standing still. So I do feel sorry for him. So there's this whole disconnect between the elite players in Australia, the elite coaching staff, and the rest of the, the players, which it, it's really taking a gamble on very few players. And I, I was listening to an interview with former coach John Buchanan. He was saying that in, in club cricket in Brisbane at the moment, there are very few players over 35. So the focus is on having these young players to go through the system or pathways as they call them. So these younger players don't get to mix with the older players who could be former internationals, former shield players that toughen them up, get them used to playing in conditions. They're sort of mollycoddled through the system right now. There's also been stories where a groundsman prepared a pitch um, and apparently up to seven balls, one of the major bowlers was told he couldn't bowl anymore because of his workload. So they're increasingly mollycoddled and, and above the rest of the system, which when you do that, it does create this gilded bubble, as the Ethics Center pointed out, the sort of bubble they live in. They don't really, they're not grounded in reality. They're sort of removed from the average, you know, club players or clubbies as they call them. So that gilded bubble and the enormous amount of money they get compared to seven years ago, 10 years ago, it's enormous the change in cricket. And I think a little bit Cricket Australia is behaving like a bit of a nouveau riche, you know. It's all about the material stuff, winning at all costs. But they've lost the brand. You know, the brand is what they were the custodians over. And it's also very unusual because as cricket boards in most countries, it's kind of a monopoly over the sport. So you don't always hear opposing viewpoints. And in the last few years, CA at the national level has increased their power with diminishing the state's power. And I think that's not the right way to go. And hopefully that will be changed after this review. Yeah. I mean, some, some fairly damning observations from the review. You know, so CA has become arrogant and controlling. Uh, the national team has, has basically, um, you know, been willing to cheat under, under the, this kind of mantra of playing hard to win. Um, the wider organization uh, has indulged in bullying under the cloak of tough negotiations. Um, and you saw the, you saw the uh, email sent by the chairman to um, Channel 10 during the negotiation process for, for the, the rights, where he called them bottom feeders. <laughs> and these are people you know, negotiating for rights of cricket broadcast. And by the way, Channel 10 in Australia have done a marvelous job with a big bash over the last five years to really elevate that game. And sort of to be bullied and belittled like that, it seems it's unprofessional. Um, it's arrogant as well. Yeah. And... You know, the, the ball tampering incident at Newlands is, is described as uh, as uh, not an aberration, but, but something that has kind of emerged organically from this culture. Um, and the events were disappointing, but not surprising. I thought that, that the review was interesting. It has this set of shadow values and principles that it thinks are actually what are being used rather than the ones that CA uses. And those are interesting. I mean, you had things like command and control, only results matter. Australia needs us to win. Um, popularity matters. Wow. That's just, that's just that's one for our influencer marketing era. Um, Unleash the beast. That I think was specifically... Smash the boundaries. And um, 
My favorite one, we're great on diversity. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think if you step back a minute, if you step back a minute and look at it, it's in a way, it's quite brave to commission this report and let it all come out in public because it's, it's, it's extremely damning. Um, I think the report is pretty well done, um, but it does have some weird, it calls out some weird things in the report. Like it, it said of CA's behavior in Newlands that the overall response to the incident in Newlands was described as exemplary, um, which I just find hard to believe. I think the whole way it was handled, the weird press conference first up with um, with Steve Smith and Cameron Brancroft was an absolute schmozzle a disaster of a press conference. Um, yeah. The way it was handled the next day by Cricket Australia flying people over, you know, the, the really, really strict sanctions imposed only on those three players with no fallout to the senior management or leadership in the group. Uh, it was all a bit strange to me, and I don't know how anybody could describe that as being exemplary. Now, but I think that kind of thing is what you often see with these reviews. You, you, you often get some of these findings are just a bit strange. Um, the Australian Cricketers Association has called for the bans to be lifted on um, Steve Smith, David Warner and Cameron Bancroft. They've said, you know, in line with the review's findings, that Cricket Australia is responsible for the, for the ball tampering, not the players. So they shouldn't be punished. What's your view on that? I think unless Peeva goes, I, I think it's, he's already stated, you know, categorically, categorically several times that he's not going to, they won't overturn those bans. Um, I think if they do overturn the bans, there's got to be more fallout because, you know, if you, if you go back to the press conference on Monday, Peeva did admit that he takes full responsibility. So if you take responsibility, then what's your sanction, right? I mean, you just go on as always. Where these three young guys have basically been, Warner might not ever play again for Australia. Um, you know, these guys have been put on the vanquished to the sort of outskirts of the city. Um, it's surprising. So if, if that changes and if Peeva steps down, I think we could see a review of those sanctions. Interesting. Interesting. And then what will happen next? I mean, with these recommendations, is there a, a mechanism by which things will change? I think if you, if you look down at the 42 recommendations um, on the Cricket Australia website, they've actually listed the recommendations out and then they've listed Cricket Australia's response so I guess they've they've taken on most of the of the recommendations, but they've, they're challenging a few of them, and I guess some of them will take challenging two. I think they're challenging two of them. From what I and, and some of them are out of control. So uh, they're out of their control. So for example, they've recommended that umpires give ratings to players um, based on their behaviour on the field. And I've always been a big believer in that, and I, I believe in yellow. I believe in yellow cards for players. Um, yeah. I believe there should be sanctions for misbehavior on the field. And if you if you think of referees in other sports, referees in most sports have a lot of power and they do call that yellow cards, whether it's football, whether it's rugby, for misbehavior by players. Um, and that needs to come into cricket. There needs to be some sort of instant you know, penalty to a team versus they play the whole game and they might get a one-game suspension or a point, uh, a misdemeanor point. There needs to be an instant penalty there uh, on the field. I think it's a good idea. I think the ones they've rejected are that um, players be taken out of um, T20. Is it T20 consideration to play right. to play shield cricket? Um, so they've rejected that one off, off out of hand, which which you can understand, I think. Um, and the other one is that the minutes of CA board meetings be made public. They said that would, would release commercially sensitive information. Um, again, I don't 
I think you can make them public and you can redact some of the information if, if required. So I'm not sure why that, you know, they're fighting that one quite so hard. The other recommendation, of course, they made was that players should play at least two first-class matches or Sheffield Shield games per season and at least be available for club cricket when they're not playing. And I think that's a reasonable demand. I I think the link between club first-class cricket and international league cricket in Australia has gone or has elevated in the last few years. So if you can bring that back down to earth. And the great Australian teams of the 90s and early 2000s have a strong link. People would play club cricket or play Sheffield Shield cricket when they're available. Now, the problem you have these days is there's just so much cricket on. Um, You know, Australia have just played a tour in Pakistan where they got totally outplayed. They're playing a three-match ODI series starting this week against South Africa. Then there's the whole Australian season, the India tour, then Sri Lanka later on, another tour after that. So there's just so much cricket on now. Yeah, and it's difficult, I think, to to, you know, balance the, some of the recommendations with the amount of cricket that's being played. How, how much uh, cricket do the, do the Indian players play? How much would Virat Kohli or these guys play in Rad, Ranji Trophy? Or No, I mean, very rarely. Kohli won't have played a Ranji, Ranji Trophy game for years. You know, you're talking years. Only if, if, if they get dropped um, will they go back. Yeah, otherwise it's, it's just not happening. It's so rare. Um, and you, you can argue there's a similar problem in India, for sure, I think. Um, I mean, I, I read a stat on Kohli that about the number of days he plays cricket a year over the, over the last, I think it's three or four years. Um, and it's ridiculous. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's sort of playing cricket yeah, most days of the year, it seems. And if he's not playing, he's... He's on a tour or he's preparing or he's in a series. Yeah. Um, I think if, if, you know, if, you, if you look at what happens at Newlands, you, you, you can talk a lot about it. But I, I think, you know, you're playing so much cricket. There's so much pressure on you. This whole, you know, you have to win. Um, you know, do you go to ball tampering? Perhaps not. I mean, but it's boiling over. The pressure explodes uh, and something happens like this. So, so hopefully that won't happen to Coley or the Indian players. But... You know, when you're under so much stress, playing day in, day out, there's pressure on you from all the players, uh, from the board. Um, you know, Pat Howard's, you know, notorious emails. I don't know if you saw the email after Australia lost to Bangladesh last year. He sent this terse email to all the players saying that basically it's known as the Dhaka Cafe email. No, he was sitting I, I didn't in a cafe see it, in Dhaka. He wrote this very terse email to all the players saying that, you know, you guys should be embarrassed. That was a terrible performance when you lost that test. Most of those players wouldn't even get a wouldn't even get a game in first class cricket in Australia. You're beaten by amateurs, basically. So again, disrespecting the opponents, right? Um, you know, Bangladesh have some really good players, right? It's completely belittling the team, belittling the opposition. So that tells you a lot about the culture in the team as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's disappointing. I think, I mean, on the one hand, it's you can say it's really easy, right? It's really easy to decide not to cheat. Um, but then, and we've discussed this before, the problem with the ball tampering incident wasn't so much that it was, um, it was cheating. It was that it was, they were really doing something that, that every team is doing yeah. to, to differing extents. And I think just because for, for various reasons, many of which were out of their control, um, the, the, the world game, the Australian public, I think decided to make an example of it. 
Yeah, and I think we've also touched upon the fact that this was not a popular team in Australia and getting less popular. So this was, was, this was kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, I think that was the issue. And, and that is kind of what the review points to. I mean, that, I think, is what Cricket Australia has overseen. That really, I think you can lay the blame you know, squarely on their shoulders for the lack of goodwill that today exists uh, towards the Australian cricket team. And that's from both the Australian public um, and also, you know, the, the, the wider world. So there's really, I think, been a breakdown in trust between the Australian cricket team and its, and its customers. Exactly what it is. Um, so did you, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the players packed, Arun, but the players packed was very funny. And I don't often agree with Michael Vaughan, but he called the players packed cringeworthy. And I would have to agree with him. Let me read it out to the fans here. Uh, this was, <laughs> it's, it's one of the things you sit around in a kind of a, you know, in a room with no windows and get a whiteboard out and start brainstorming about your mission statement and, and all kinds of things. But, but here's, it's quite a simple players pact. Um, and I'm guessing they're going to be sledged big time on this when they go out to bat. They're going to be people like, you know, chirping at them from slips and talking about it. So the players pact. We recognize how lucky we are to play this great game. We respect the game and its traditions. We want to make all Australians proud. So playing to make people proud of you. And then there's four little lines, like almost a sort of a haiku here. Um, compete with us, smile with us, fight on with us, and dream with us. What? <laughs> it's, very loft- it's very lofty language, isn't it? Who's this director at? I guess when they're saying... Compete with us. Is that the public? Is that them? Is that the opponents? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, um, I, I sort of felt sorry for Tim Payne when he was reading it out. Um, he was like, they threw him this players pack to read out. Uh, and I thought he and Josh Hazelwood did a good job. I mean, they've been sort of left holding the bag here with the players. So they're doing the best they can do. Um, yeah. I guess it's a, it's a stab at trying to be more, you know, broader, more about connecting with people at all at all levels of cricket, um, you know, competing together um, and fighting on and dreaming on. So, quite a funny little pact. Smile with us. Yeah, I, it it just it just looks weird to me. Anyway, what about smile at us? <laughs> yeah, that would maybe have been better. Yeah, laugh at us. Laugh, laugh at us, not with us. <laughs> yeah. Um. But anyway, oh so I think yeah. they they finally, I think they finally hit rock bottom. Um, I, I, <laughs> you think? I thought that after the Pakistan tour, but um, yeah, I, I just yeah. I hopefully they've hit rock bottom. It's 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 kind of staggering now when you think about it. Um, you know, if you'd said to me even two years ago or three years ago that this Australian team would be going through such turmoil, you know, I would never have believed you and. If you'd said it f- five or ten years ago when Australia were pretty much the best team in the world, um, you know, it would have seemed ludicrous. Yeah, because you, you remember in those days, you know, the Cricket Australia was held up for its national academy, its strong first-class cricket, its diverse pitches around the country. So you had the spinning pitch in Sydney, the low in Melbourne, the fast pitch in Perth. You could play in all conditions. And that seems to have really gone out the window in the last little while. And we still can't bat. If you look, if you look, I mean, if you look down the rankings, it really bears it out. I mean, 
Australia has dropped down big time. And I think in the top 20 batsmen, they have one current player, which is Usman Khawaja. Um, yeah. In the ODIs, they have only one batsman in the top 20, which is Aaron Finch. Um, yeah. So really, you see that being borne out in the stats and also in the rankings. All right. So should we talk about some actual cricket <laughs> as opposed to cricket administration? Um, and maybe then... something on a more positive note, <laughs> a more uplifting note. Well, Virat Kohli has got his 10K. He has he's reached 10,000 ODI runs, and it's ridiculous. I mean, it, he's done it in 205 innings, and as you know, I'm sure the next fastest Sachin Tendulkar, 259 innings. I mean, it's just insane. And watching him bat now in one-day cricket, I think he's averaging 91 since the beginning of 2017. Um, he scored three centuries in a row against, you know, an albeit against a weak West Indian team, so he became, I think, just the eighth player to do that. Um, but he does seem to have solved 50-over batting. Uh, he, you know, the way he bats now, he doesn't take any risks. Um, you know, he doesn't play any big shots, really, until he gets to his 100. Um, he, he, he keeps his strike rate at about 110, 120 yeah. without really breaking a sweat. He runs a lot of singles. I mean, he's immensely fit. And uh, it's just, you know, his, his brain is a bit a bit like a computer. He reminds me a little bit of Michael Bevan and, you know, the great finishers. Um, he's kind of applied that kind of thinking um, across the game. He's, obviously, he's a very different approach to Tendulkar, who um, was a lot more flamboyant, actually, in, in one-day cricket. And really went for his shots in general, but... But so Kohli's got his 10K. Um... You know, interesting stat here is that, you know, Kohli could make ducks in his next 50 innings and still have the most runs at the stage of ODI career. So that shows you just how far ahead he is of everybody else. And I mean, he, he just, like you said, he looks so at ease at the crease. He just doesn't look flustered. He, he it barely looks like he'll get out. Um, incredible, he's an incredible player at the moment. He's in the form of his life. It's been a hell of a year for him, you have to say. I think the England tour will have, you know, put any doubts in his mind to rest that, you know, he's, uh, that he had any weaknesses. He seems to have addressed them all. Um, uh, so, you know, that will as well for India. I mean, they've, obviously they're playing a, a, weak, a weakened West Indian team, um, which is a shame. Uh, they, they, I think they're up now 3-1 in the series. They absolutely, you know, there was a huge thumping win in the in the fourth ODI, something like two hundred and twenty-four runs. Uh, you know, it's difficult to read much into this series. There's a lot being made of whether India will solve its middle order conundrum ahead of the World Cup. Uh, Umbathy Raidu scored a century in the fourth ODI, so the suggestion is that he's now solidified the number four position. I think he probably has, but I'm I'm not convinced he's the best bet. Uh, and if he is the best bet, I'm not convinced he is someone that is going to win in the World Cup. Yeah, that way. I mean, it's it's just such a pity that we can't get you know the best West Indian players back into the team, and you know they're, they're missing Andre Russell, the Bravo brothers, Sonal Narine, the universe, yep. the universe boss, Chris Gale, Evan, Evan Lewis, Evan Lewis, Kyron Pollard. I mean, if they could get half those players back on the pitch, they'd have a, such a competitive team. And being down and, and actually managing to win a game against India in India is actually quite impressive. 
Yeah, and and they won that game, the third ODI, quite comfortably, I thought. And in, in fact, they exposed the weaknesses in India's batting. I mean, the, the problems with MS Dhoni you know, continue. Um, and in terms of the West Indies, I mean, it's, is it just the case that the players uh, would rather play T20 cricket around the world? It's, it's, it's a financial decision? I think it's mostly a financial decision. I think there's a bit of politics at play, but I think... Mostly it's a lack of funding in, in West Indies cricket. So anyway, that's India-West Indies. There's not much more to say about that. I mean, the other thing that's happening in India, you know, if you think Australian cricket has administrative problems, um, you could always console yourself by looking at <laughs> whatever's, whatever's happening in India. They, they continue to have various issues with the, um, the Indian cricket board, the, the um, BCCI. Saurav Ganguly has written a letter saying that. he has a, a deep sense of fear and worry. He is actually the president of the Cricket Association of Bengal. So yeah. he's, he's in a position to write this letter. He says he has a deep sense of fear and worry about how cricket is being run in India. Um, games popularity is in danger because of the current administration. The way Ravi Shastri was selected as national team head coach, he described as appalling. Looking forward to Shastri's comeback. And he said that he was named batting coach in a release, but he was uh, never he never took the role or was never consulted about it, which is just Rahul, bizarre. Rahul, uh, Rahul Dravid and Zahir Khan were appointed batting and bowling consultants. But from what I understand, neither have done anything in that capacity. Correct, which is bizarre. That, that That's an, an official release from the board, but it's actually fabricated or, or, I don't know, you know, totally made up or misleading. It's very strange indeed. Yes, I'm glad he's written this letter. I think the only way Indian cricket will change is if people like Ganguly and Dravid and Kumble bring their influence to bear. Uh, because they're really the only people that can change things, I think. Right. That's not to say they will change things. I think it's incredibly difficult. Um, you've got such entrenched... Uh, interests and and also these these people well i mean ganguly is is a reasonably good politician but these people are not really politicians and they're up against people who are veteran politicians and know how to play these systems um and so it's an interesting situation i mean there's also um uh you may be aware sexual harassment allegations have been made against the bcci ceo yeah. rahul jodi um and so those are being investigated at the moment as well, um, another cricket administrator, or at least an ex-cricket administrator in trouble, former Sri Lankan captain Arjuna Ranatunga, is out on bail mm. after he was involved in a shooting that killed one and injured two others in Colombo on Sunday. Yeah, in the middle. Of, so Sri Lanka is facing this kind of unprecedented political crisis. The president, president, does dismiss the prime minister. Correct. And Ranatunga is aligned with the dismissed prime minister, so he's he's seen as a target. There was some sort of a he kind of ended up in the middle of a mob, I think, trying to get to his office, and his bodyguards right. um, shot shot very sadly shot three people, one of whom has died, and another is crit critically injured. Um, Ranatunga, of course, is is the minister for the development of petroleum resources, which is not something I saw coming during his cricket career. I must confess, you wouldn't have thought so. Um, no, you wouldn't have. Of course, he did famously lead Sri Lanka to the World Cup in 1996, which is his claim to oh, fame. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he was a, I mean, he is really one of the great cricket captains, you'd have to say. Yeah, he really I mean, was. He's kind of carried that nation. 
uh, to the World Cup, managed to annoy pretty much everyone in the process, in particular Steve Waugh, for which he gets extra bonus points. Well, I think Steve Waugh, um, Shane Warne, <laughs> Healy, they all had a good stage yeah. at him, giving his rotund yeah. shape, but he stood up to them. And good on him. But it seems to be that his, you know, it was his bodyguards because they wouldn't let him leave the premises. Um, he had to be extracted by the kind of SWAT team in Sri Lanka as well. So obviously things turned ugly. Very unfortunate incident indeed. Yeah, but the other thing, I guess, is that he's on the wrong side now of the, the political administration. So we're getting very... This is very political for cricket ultras, but Sri Lanka has now brought in their former uh, prime minister... Um, Hindra Rajat Paksa, and he is not aligned with Ananatunga, so Ananatunga will find himself isolated, and and you know he's been arrested. So anyway, so yeah, some some worrying times for uh, for him. Um, and then I think perhaps the only other thing I really wanted to discuss is the curious career, and we should probably have had Toby Doman on, but he'll be back on for the next podcast. The curious career of England player Joe Denley. Yeah. How about that? First international appearance for eight and a half years. Yeah. And what is it? He takes four for 19? Yeah, and, and scored a few um, runs with the bat as well, I think. So, um, yeah, coming in from the cold and making the best of his opportunity. Um, so that was pretty interesting. His international exile was, the, was second only to West Indies all-rounder Riyad Emirates. Who, who went longer than the eight and a half years um, that Denley did. Because Denley, he made his last performance in Dubai in February 2010 um, when he was a batsman. He's since become a bowler, which I just find perplexing. A leg spinner, indeed, at that, which is even more strange. If you look on his bio, it's basically this is him as a batsman, but then he picks yeah. up four for 17. Thank you very uh, much. Yeah. He's, um, he's become a, a very handy, limited-overs leg spinner. Um, interestingly, so he's second on the list of, of longest international exiles. Do you know who, who's third? It's got to be an Australian player, I think. Um, nope, but close. It's our favourite country. New Zealand. Um, yeah. Who oh, could it be? Oh, um, Ross Taylor. Nope. It's actually, and you'll kick yourself now, it's Jeff Wilson. Rugby player. Exactly. Missed 344 cricket matches, but during that time, played 60 tests as an all-black swinger and did pretty well. Just quietly. He was a legend. <laughs> he was a legend. He was exactly. an absolute great winger for the all-blacks, yeah. Yeah, but obviously in New Zealand, you know, they don't have that many people, so he had to, to come back. <laughs> That's right. A lot of them double up on the weekends. Exactly. Okay, one, one sport on Saturday, one sport on Sunday. <laughs> so staying on in England there, so the test series is coming up, isn't it? Tests. So, what do you, what's your prediction? My prediction is that rain will be the winner. Is my prediction. I mean, I'm not sure why they've scheduled a series in the middle of the Sri Lankan monsoon. There's also this political crisis to contend with, um, and Sri Lanka is a country that has has had issues with public security in the past. Um, so we hope uh, none of this spills into the cricket. Um, if there's enough play, uh, I actually think. Um, Sri Lanka will will probably prevail. I hmm. just feel their spin bowling at home makes them quite a fearsome proposition. And, you know, I'm not sure England... I don't know. I have, It's one of those series where I feel like England will be preoccupied with with other 
events. The only thing I would say is that given the weather, I think wickets this time of the year tend to be a bit more seam friendly. Um, so that might help them. But I mean, if, if you know, Rang, you know, if Herath gets on top, did Herath retire yet or not? Or is ret- I'm not sure he'll, he'll ever, I don't think he'll ever retire. Really, I think he's. Oh, <laughs> why would he? Especially when yeah. he's bowling in Sri Lanka. Especially um, when England rock up, he's going to be. He's ready. He's ready. That's right. He's, he's coming out of retirement every time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it could go either way, couldn't it? It's going to be. It's going to be an interesting series if they actually get the games in. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if England prevail. Now, well, the, the thing is, Sri Lanka have been extremely weak recently. You know, they've they've had all sorts of problems, and we've discussed the Angela Matthews affair. Um, so, you know, they're without their captain or, or they've got a different captain. Um, so, you you know, they're not in the best position, but I do think they probably have, a, you know, a, a stronger offering at home. Um, England don't travel well. Most, you know, most, most teams don't travel well. Let's see. I, I mean, I think they're doing well in the, in the one-day department. That yeah. might that might flow over into the test matches there. So, let's see. Um and of course, the other series going on is Australia versus South Africa, the old foes. First ODI game this Sunday in Perth. And of course, we'll see a lot of firepower from the South Africans. We have Ngidi Rabada and also Stain is making his comeback and led by the ultimate alpha male in Faf du Plessis, the smarmy Faf du Plessis. So um, what, yeah, what do you think? Um, I suspect South Africa will have too much. Australia. Uh, Australia are playing at home, right? So that's in their favour. But as we've seen, these are testing times for Australian cricket. They just went to the Middle East, didn't play particularly well. Um, yeah, a lot of their players seem out of form. Your your friends, um, or maybe not friends, but your um, your favourites, the Marsh family, seem to be... Um, Everybody's favourite Marsh brothers. Really out of touch. You know, Mitchell Marsh... Yeah, Mitchell Marsh in particular is, is having, you know, his, his average has fallen off a cliff. Yeah, he's uh, been dropped for this series, by the way. Oh, right. Despite being one of the several vice-captains. Exa- well, there's, there's many vice-captains to step into the, up to the plate. There's also Alex Carey, the keeper, and also Joss Hazelwood, who's playing in, who's in the squad. But, but, but Australia have gone with a curious one-day lineup. It looks like almost like a te- test match lineup. They've gone with Stark, Hazelwood, and Cummins. Um, and then perhaps Adam Zampa or Ashton Agar, and they seem to have left out, again, um, Lyon. He seems to not be able to get a look into the one-day day team, which is a bit surprising. But, you know, Australian conditions, they might do yeah. better, but I, I expect South Africa to steamroll them. Yeah, I actually think it makes sense for them to bring in those bowlers because I think at this point, Australia just need to get their best players out onto the field. I think their one-day yeah. team is actually in a, in, you know, in a weaker position and the test team, right? Much weaker. So, yeah, so there's a, definitely a case to be made for playing Stark and Cummins and Hazelwood um, on Australian surfaces. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's not the worst idea. And um, the problem, as you've already pointed out a few times on this podcast, is Australia's batting, right? I mean, Aaron Finch, um, is he the captain now? Yeah, he is the captain yeah, at the moment. Right. He's the captain um, today. <laughs> he's the captain today, but he's never been the most convincing. Um, and he's going to open the batting, I guess. Um, I think he's a very good white ball player. There's no doubt about that. Um, but interesting, Stan, I think Australia have won, <clears throat> out of their last 20 matches, they've only won four matches in all, in all kind of, whether it's white ball or red ball. That's, 
It's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it does feel like this is Australia's Annus Horribilis in terms of cricket, right? And that, you know, <laughs> they just maybe they just need to get through this year and just start again in 2019, um, which bodes well for the India tour, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. <laughs> there, there is some good news coming out of Australia, though. Sort of two, two things this week that caught a more positive note in my mind was the new Stuart McGill, Lloyd Pope, um, okay. the flaming redhead South, African, uh, South Australian bowler. I think he's wow. eight, 18 years old. He took seven wickets in a, in a first-class match. He bowls an amazing wrongen, which... Okay. The Australian media is going crazy about. I mean, it seems none of our bowlers can really bowl wrongans, none of our leg spinners, but he bowls a mean wrongan. Um, okay. His flaming red hair, uh, he's yeah. all over the place. He's an enthusiastic guy. So he, there's something very interesting to watch in him going does he forward. Drink, uh, does he drink wine? <laughs> I think he does. Um, that's why they're calling him the new Stuart McGill and not the new Shane Warne. And I will recommend something before we close out the podcast. I, I just read Gideon Haig's book, Crossing the Line. Um, if oh, the you know, new listeners, listeners are aware, Gideon Haig is a very good writer. He's the uh, best. He writes about sport. He's just written a, a book called Crossing the Line. It's not very long. Uh, it's a kind of a short novel, but definitely worth a read. It sort of, it sort of lays out everything since August to now and, and what happened to Australian cricket. I think it's a great read if you're interested. Gideon Haig, we've discussed this before. I think he is the best writer on cricket. Um, very eloquent too. And his book, I don't know if you've read it, the Cricket War or Cricket Wars? Yeah. About the um, when Kerry Packer took over cricket is is really required reading, and I would I would recommend that to all our listeners. And in fact, we need to do our book episode because there are so many good books on cricket. We should do that. We'll do that for the end of the year, I think. For sure. I, I just started reading Shane Warne's book. Uh, no spin. I found it very difficult to get through the first chapter, so I might give it another crack. Yeah, who's the ghostwriter? Mark Nicholas. No, really? Yes. Oh my god. Well, that's like, I mean, the blind leading the blind, isn't it? Really? I mean, it's just like Mark Nicholas is a good writer, but he's not. I would say the most dispassionate observer of cricket. Yeah, um, and he he's into hyperbole. He's kind of trying to, to you know, summon Shane Warne's mood and Shane Warne's tone and kind of demeanor. So it's, it's very interesting to read it. You know, have, have a look at it. So he's kind of, he's like method acting. Yeah. Do you think he's still in character? Do you think he kind of goes around his everyday life in character as Shane Warne? I think maybe he does. That would be interesting for him. Yeah. There there was a photo I saw with him talking to Liz Hurley in a, in a a London (laughs) restaurant. I don't know what that, what that was about. Eating pizza. I I just, I just, of course, um, and and baked beans. So the great thing about, obviously the great thing about Amazon is that you can download a sample and read it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to read it, right? Yeah. I mean, were there pictures? Is, is this, is there, you know? No, anything? disappointingly, there no. weren't pictures. Not, not in the, the murals. Amazon version. <laughs> no murals. No murals. Okay. All right, Darren, I think you've got to go. I've got to go. Thank you all for listening. Um, we'll be back on next time. We'll talk about the England uh, Sri Lanka series in more detail. Um, And we'll have Toby Derman back on. Thank you all.